How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to In Context. We are so glad you are joining us again today. This is our fifth episode in a discipleship series. My name is Hannah Seymour, and I am, of course, sitting here with my father, Michael Easley. How are you doing today, Dad? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm doing great. Good. You're looking good, rocking the RD hat. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Wearing a ball cap in the studio today. thought it would be a casual Chillaxed. dress day. Chillax. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, today our guest on the show is a good friend named Bill Hendricks, and we'll tell y'all a little bit more about Bill in a moment. But Bill is really connected to my dad because of his father, Prof. Howard Hendricks. Dad, some of our listeners have heard you talk about Prof. a ton. Some may not have. Tell us about Prof. and who he was to you. Dr. Howard Hendricks taught at Dallas for 62 years. Um, He started out as a student there, obviously, was intending to go to be a missionary in China. Hmm. And I did not uh, know that. yeah, and through a series of events, when Lewis Berry Chafer died and John Walford became the president, he asked Prof, or as he called him Howie, if he would <laughs> stay and help him. And so he agreed to stay for a couple of years. Wow. He started what became known as Christian education. He started the yep. Christian counseling uh, a track or courses at Dallas Seminary. Amazing. There was very little emphasis on Christian camping. And he had a heart for that. He was involved with Young Life. He was involved uh, with all kinds of ministries behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Crusade, he's sort of a, a legend uh, with the Crusade staffers because when they would do their training, they would go to Fort Collins, Colorado, or to California, and he would teach uh, every other summer. Mm-hmm. So he's got quite a legacy. But um, what's interesting was Bill and I actually were in seminary together. I did not know that. Yeah. So he had finished his master's somewhere, I think Harvard, and had come back, and he was just kind of quietly taking classes at Dallas. And one day we're sitting in class, and I go, I see his name, and I go, are you related to? (laughs) Yeah. It's like guilty. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I know what that's like. But um, so I wouldn't say we were close friends, but we were were friends in seminary. And then, of course, Prof's influence, they did a study of Dallas some years ago about its effectiveness uh, back when George Barna was uh, not a real well-known name. He was sort of up and coming in the research and statistics world. And they studied Dallas Seminary uh, across the country with donors and people that were aware of it. And end of the day, Howard Hendricks was the number one factor. People had some connection to Dallas Seminary. So the guy was a remarkable individual. He was an incredible communicator, uh, a lot of fun, uh, a little hard to get to know because he had... A lot of people wanted his time, sure. and he was better as a teacher and a communicator than he was in a small group Wow! until you got to know him. Yeah. So that was one of the interesting parts about it, and I, was, I, I gently pestered the prof <laughs> <laughs> my, my entire four years at seminary and beyond and became very close friends with him. Prof always had these, you know, profisms. If you go to the Dallas uh, website, they have a whole page of uh, stories and legacies and his isms Uh Um, but he would always say where are your men if I come visit you where are your men where are your men because he believed that ministry wasn't just 
Bible teaching, it was just a pulpit. It wasn't building buildings. It was building men, building into people's lives. That became the seeds in my head and heart to say, if you're going to do this, you got to make disciples as you go. When I think of discipleship, I love Paul's admonition in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I, I kind of call it Paul's great commission. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. The word striving is agonizomai, where we get the English word agonize. Mm-hmm. I labor, I agonize. And if you were to distill Howard Hendricks' message down to making disciples where your men, I think it would echo Paul's sentiment Every man teaching, proclaiming, admonishing, encouraging, uh, grab them by the collars Mm. and say, this is what you need to grow. And again, this is where the church uh, could do, not that we're missing it entirely, but we could do a lot better if we were making disciples much more methodically, intentionally, uh, and making it the the lead part of the spear instead of something as an afterthought. Yeah. And that today, even more so, I feel like is so countercultural because when we look at larger global ministries, social media, our branding, all these things, we care so much about the external brand and perception that we're giving off. And it would be really interesting if Prof were alive today to hear him kind of combat some of those ideas of not, not that those things are bad, but if you're not doing it locally, one-on-one, man-to-man, woman-to-woman, whatever, what are you doing? Right. Well, and programs are programs. Programs have a place. There's, there's, uh, you look at a funnel at a church or a ministry, you bring people in at the wide part of the funnel, and you're trying to work them down to be more disciplined, more intentional, more deliberate, and help them become uh, reproducers. It's a few. It's always a few. Your mom and I had a guest the other night. He stayed over one night. His family members were at the hospital at Vanderbilt, and he spent the night with us. And he's an elder at his church in Alabama. And he was in the first marriage mentor group that your mom and I did some 16 years ago. Oh, yeah. And he told the story to us that evening that all the elders on in this church he was involved with had either been discipled by a pastor or a deacon in their younger years. Oh, wow. And it was really interesting because I had never heard anyone talk about that. Like, huh. why did you become an elder? And sure. that's just one church. But he was just, you know, relating the story because it was our time back in D.C., yeah. Northern Virginia, when we got to know Andrew and uh, where he grew like a weed. And now he's an elder yeah. in a local church some yeah. years there. So it goes back to that discipleship model. Christ said, we've talked about this throughout the series, I will be my church. And he told us to make disciples. And we seem to have gotten that backwards. Mm. And uh, to your point, social media, branding, positioning, marketing, it is a lot of self-promotion. Yeah. And not that that's entirely bad, but if we're not promoting Christ and helping people become followers of Christ, I think we're missing a mark. Well, your conversation with Bill comes from an interesting perspective as he is the president of the Giftedness Center. And we wanted to talk to him about how does our unique God-given wirings impact our disciple making. And I think that relates really well to the conversation you had last week with Carl Cartee. He's a worship leader, a songwriter, and he has been making disciples 
really through this idea of training people how to be worship leaders. But at the end of the day, he's teaching people biblical literacy, character development, how to live in community and accountability. He's making disciples. So let's go ahead and listen in on your and Bill's conversation right now. Well, we're talking to Bill Hendricks, the president of the Giftedness Center, which was born out of a consulting practice that he started in 1985. For over 20 years, he's been helping people make critical life and career decisions based on their giftedness. You wrote a book not long ago called The Person Called You, Why You're Here, Why You Matter, and What You Should Do With Your Life. Can you answer those questions for me, Bill? <laughs> sure, in five seconds or less. Yeah, I'll give you ten. I'll give you ten. <laughs> well, aren't those really the questions everybody's asking? You know, what am I doing here? I, I suppose the popular way that people put it is, what should I do when I grow up? And uh, it's, it's really the whole issue that we would call calling. You know, what am I? Mm-hmm. what's my calling in life? And so what this book does, and really what my practice does, is, is tries to help people think through well, how did God design you? How did he put you together? Because he did so for a purpose. And if we can figure out how he designed you, then we have a lot of clues as to what your purpose turns out to be. Well, let's talk about discipleship. And it comes in many waves, shapes, forms, titles, programs, curriculum, so forth and so on. Um, with what you're doing, and, and uh, is, is it an overstatement to say essentially you're helping people become disciples with their wiring and giftedness? Well, absolutely. Uh, I believe that it's it's central, frankly, to one's discipleship. We're called to follow Christ as disciples, and that's going to look a little bit different for each person. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you have a different personality, a different makeup, different gifts than I do, which is different in turn from every person listening to this podcast. It turns out that every human being actually is unique. And the way that uniqueness manifests itself is is basically in the way that they are wired, designed to do life. When when you think of discipleship, and again, we can talk about this with lots of terms, um, is reproduction part of the package? Oh, absolutely. You know, Jesus said that in in John fifteen that if we abide in Him, if we if we are taking in his life, which is what it really means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus and to live uh, uh, through his spirit. Um, One of the hallmarks of that, one of the signs of that, is that we'll bear much fruit. You know, healthy fruit reproduces. And and, and in fact, this is a theme that starts in Genesis 1. I mean, the very first words that God says to human beings uh, have to do with the way he's made them in his image. And he says, I want you to be fruitful, that is to flourish, I want you to multiply. And that's just not having babies, that's making the world flourish, that's making other people flourish, which has that idea of life and vitality and, and reproduction. And so uh, through our gifts, he's given us a means by which to make the world flourish. And of course, uh, that includes making the, the people flourish spiritually, which always begins, of course, with telling them about uh, you know this wonderful thing that that God has done in providing Jesus as our Savior uh, and, and as our source of life, and to be able to tell people about Him, then they can see it in our own lives as we lean into the purposes for which God has put us here. Your dad was fond of using the fat man, and then he later called it the faith man. 
faithful, available, right. teachable. The church in, in large, and as a churchman for you know north of 30 years now, um, I don't think the church has done the best job making disciples. In fact, some time ago, Tommy Nelson and I were together and chatting about, you know, we've we've built buildings and let somebody else make disciples when Jesus told us to make disciples and he would build the church. What's your diagnostic on why the church hasn't done so well? And I, I don't want to be, you know, overgeneralistic, but it doesn't seem to have done well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I have the summary diagnostic on it, but I, I can certainly point to at least one thing. It, it has to do with the nature of discipleship. Discipleship is a process, which means it involves getting involved with a person uh, in some, some activities some processes over time. You know, in, in uh, Corinthians, Paul uses the image of a farmer who goes out to a field and plants seed, and then it takes a while for the rains to come and a few years for the plants to grow, and, and, and of course, God is causing the increase. But all of that takes time. Unfortunately, we live in a society where we want everything yesterday. We want everything instantly. And that in- includes uh, the gr- so-called growth of our churches. And so we set things up for there to be rapid growth, but what we really mean is rapid attendance. We, we, we sort of cater to the fact that people are going to show up, and we think, okay, we've done a big deal here. But real growth, that is long-term, lasting spiritual growth, is much slower than just somebody showing up to a program. It, it, it involves a life-on-life interaction that takes place over time, many years, in fact. Well, that's a slow burn. And for that reason, people get busy, they get distracted, they think it's taken too long. And I'm not talking about just the disciples, the people that are growing, but also the disciplers, the people that are causing the growth or stimulating the growth. And both sides kind of get weary, in our culture anyway, and then they slack off on that and go back to more interesting, exciting things that are immediate. And as a result, I think we have a lot of people that are very entertained, but they're not necessarily mature in Christ. And you see this all over the place, uh, the thinking, the poor thinking, the poor judgment, uh, the, the lifestyles that really don't really look a whole lot different from somebody who doesn't have Christ. Uh, this is all the result of uh, being lax in our attendance to day by day, day in, day out, over time, long obedience in the same direction. Uh, discipleship. I know it might be a little bit unrealistic, but can you give me, from from your lens, indicators of a person is a disciple when? Well, we have these wonderful pictures that Paul gives us in all of his letters, you know, after he tells us about all that God's done for us, and then he talks about our response to it. So, for instance, in Romans 12, or in Ephesians 4, and 5, and 6, or in the Colossians 3 and 4, etc., Um, You always have these pictures. What you see uh, described there are certain kinds of people. It's in the way that they live and and, uh, function in this world. And what you see is that, first of all, from their inner being, uh, there's a peace about them. They're not anxious. There's a gentleness about them. Uh, They're not rough. They're not angry. Um, They're honest. They bring integrity. Um, their word can be taken seriously. Uh, they speak what is true. And this is not just you know a checklist of things that we check off. This is a day-in and day-out way that they interact and relate to other people. And it flows out of this life uh, and relationship that, that they have cultivated with Christ himself. And this Holy Spirit is now resident and, and essentially in control in this person. 
and we see what Galatians 5 talks about, which is the fruit of the Spirit manifested. When you look at men and women you know, that you've known for years, they're mature, they love Christ, they know their way around the Word. They're not making disciples, Bill. They want to be used. They want to feel like they've got purpose. What would you say to them to uh, you know, prod them along a little bit in their thinking? Well, two things I'd say. One is, when it comes to discipleship, the fields are wide into harvest, as it were. I can speak from personal knowledge and experience. We have a generation of millennials, young adults, and they are desperate for mentors. Uh, what they most need is an older adult to come and sort of grab them by the hand, as it were, and invite them into the adult world. And, and so there's a tremendous uh, desire, not just a need, but a desire on the part of many young adults for somebody to disciple them. Then on the, on the other side of it, we may make you know, this process of discipling someone sound much more complicated than it actually is. I believe that at heart, if you've been walking with Christ for many years, you already have what is needed to disciple somebody. And that is the maturity of walking with Christ for many years. I'll say all, in quotes, that's, that's really needed is that you, you grab a younger person and you, you invite them to have a, a Starbucks with you or something. And you get with them and you sit there and listen to their story and ask them what their desires are, their dreams, their aspirations. Where, where's their life going? You know, and what do they think is holding them back? And what would they most like to know as they're trying to make decisions about their life? And you, you basically just form a friendship with that person. And over time, in those kinds of conversations, this person's needs, their concerns, their confusion, their uh, misinformation, all this stuff will come on the table. And you have a wonderful opportunity, again, in a gentle but helpful way, to correct that which is in error, to encourage you know, where they're discouraged, to give them a hope, to give them a vision, to, you know, a lot of them, what they really need is, is for some adult to see more in them than they see in themselves. You know, you mentioned my dad, and you know from having been with him at Dallas Seminary, this is exactly what he did by the, by the day with students. You know, the, the most profound thing I think my dad did for people was to believe in them and to tell them he saw potential in them and to challenge them not to aim too low, but to really you know, with God's help and by Christ's power, to aspire to to true greatness, not greatness in the sense of celebrity, but greatness in the sense of a great life, because that's what God had created them for, to live out of the greatness of his love. Bill Hendricks, president of the Giftedness Center, author of The Person Called You, and the executive director of the Center for Christian Leadership at Dallas Theological Seminary. Bill, thanks for your time, my friend. Oh, this has been great to be with you, Michael. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.